Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. This podcast is sponsored by the Dana Foundation. Kids today spend less time playing than previous generations, and they're under a lot more pressure to achieve, too. Across the country, drills and exam prep dominate most school curricula. Some schools have even gone so far as to eliminate recess altogether. You know, when we look back, Time Magazine once did an article and they said, in 1987, 40% of a young child's discretionary time was spent in play. That's a lot of time. And of course, it's been dwindling ever since. That's Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, Stanley and Deborah Lefkowitz Professor of Psychology at Temple University. She's also co-editor of the 2006 book, Play Equals Learning. She's a strong proponent of playtime as both a way of letting go and an educational tool. Play, she says, is under attack both in schools and at home. So it is a dwindling commodity as we, in many cultures, have overscheduled our kids. And also, as technology is growing, we're creating, of course, the couch potato. Between increasingly structured school curricula and a reliance on passive tech at home, Hirsch Pasek argues that we're depriving kids of not only the joys of play, but of the free form, flexible learning that play can engender. This past June, the New York Academy of Sciences put on a special workshop to get at the latest findings about the relationship between early childhood play, the development of attention, and subsequent classroom learning abilities. After the workshop, I tracked down three key speakers to get the inside scoop on the relationship between play and learning, including Dr. Hirsch Pasek, who you'll hear from again later in this podcast. But first, we'll go back to the beginning, to the early stages of learning, when play may be a little more inevitable. I'm Karen Nadoff. I'm a professor in psychology and in neuroscience, and I study how people learn new motor skills, um, mostly babies, but also older children and adults and elderly adults. I visited Dr. Adolf at NYU's Infant Action Lab, where she studies how free play fosters learning development, among other topics. Adolf says that play, for infants, is just babies doing what they need to do. A typical infant's daily actions include many different kinds of play, from locomotor play to object play and social play. The average baby has many, many different things going on in their little world at once, many inputs. The baby might be playing with an object, say a ball. Then she's banging that object, maybe getting distracted by a second ball. She's crawling about and all the while interacting with the social environment. You know, the real-life environment of infants is incredibly complex, and they generate lots of information through their own activities. And babies are moving and locomoting and claiming and walking, and they're doing all these activities in quick changes and simultaneously. Infants are almost constantly engaged in exploratory learning through play. But the fast-moving physical development of babies' bodies has a huge impact on the way they play and learn. Adolf explains. So we've found, for example, that the transition from being kind of a blob to having enough postural control to be able to sit upright affects the way infants can hold and manipulate objects, the way they can explore 
objects and the way that infants explore objects literally teaches them things about objects. That means that a baby who is able to sit upright and handle a building block in front of her is far more likely to know that that block is a 3D object or that the couch in front of her has a backside than a baby peeking out of the crib. In fact, the more days a baby has spent sitting up, the deeper and more sophisticated is her understanding of 3D object form. Just spontaneously, how they play with objects teaches them really critical things, like that an object is a 3D form. And those are not things that, you know, a parent showing the baby the object will teach them. And they're not things you learn from baby Einstein from watching a two-dimensional display on a TV. Those are things that babies learn from their own self-generated actions with three-dimensional objects. Another crucial milestone in infants' development that aids the learning process is the transition from crawling to walking. Adolf's team at the Infant Lab have studied the ways babies interact with the world as crawlers versus walkers. They found that the transition changes the range of possibilities for interaction drastically. It changes how babies experience their environment, and literally how they see that environment too. How much experience infants have crawling and walking leads to knowledge about what tasks are possible or impossible. So a baby who has just begun crawling or just begun sitting or just begun cruising or just begun walking, those infants don't even know that a big hole in the floor is impossible for locomotion or impossible for holding their body up, you know, holding their body safely. So a new sitter will fall over the edge of a precipice, as will a new crawler, a new cruiser, a new walker. But after infants have accumulated weeks and weeks of experience with each of those postures, it leads to knowledge about the relations between their body and the environment, like, I need a floor to support my body. Whether or not an infant can walk also seems to determine their social play interactions. When a crawling infant wants to interact with her mother or father around an object, like sharing a toy, she will usually do it from a seated position just holding out the object and making a noise to attract the parent's attention. And that means the moms tend to ignore them or just use these very simple affirmations. But a walker will often bring her toy over to her parent, getting right in the physical space. And according to Adolf's research, this usually elicits a much different response. When walkers pick an object up and carry it to their mother, the moms use lots of verbs and function words and tell babies what to do with the object and how they can use the object. Okay, now, put, the, put the block in first. Let me see it. Can you bring it here? Such action words help babies learn, from social skills to language, usage, and beyond. The bottom line? As babies transition through the phases of development, their ability to learn becomes greatly expanded, too. So when infants are just freely moving around, they take about 2,000 steps per hour or about 15,000 steps per day. That's a lot of steps. Um, so locomotor play is immense. Like What infants will accumulate in terms of the kind of information they generate during play is completely immense. But when infants are freely playing, even when it looks like they're repeating things, they're not repeating it exactly the same way each time. 
what they're really getting is something called distributed variable practice. So it's not like they're doing the, you know, the same drill over and over again and cramming it all in, you know, the night before the exam. What they're doing is spreading their activity out in little bursts, and they do that spontaneously. And each time they generate a little burst of activity, there's something that's new and slightly different than the last time they generated a burst. And that brings us back up to the classroom educational context and back to Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek. Hirsch-Pasek's research has focused on a slightly older demographic than Adolf's, but many of the same lessons hold true. In older kids, however, there are two distinct kinds of play we want to talk about. One is free play, just kids being kids, horsing around, exploring. The second is guided play, which, as its name may suggest, is more structured. For example, there's play with things like construction toys, where we might be asked to build a model. And when we do, we're following directions and we're planning. And we're trying to make the moat on that castle just big enough so that the bad guys don't get in and the good guys control the fort. This type of play usually sees adults be it parents, teachers, or other caregivers, take on a more active role in stimulating learning. They're not telling you exactly what to do. But they're saying, could it be done another way? How else might you think about that? Is there any other way you could build that tower just a pinch taller and have it balance so that it doesn't fall down? And importantly, guided play isn't chocolate-covered broccoli, as Hirsch Pasek put it. It's really play child-initiated but it has an extrinsic goal in mind. And that's what makes it different from free play, where you often don't have an extrinsic goal, when you're just playing to play and where tea time can morph into superheroes. Hirsch-Pasek says that play as a tool for learning isn't given due consideration in our society today. Block building, or Simon Says, might seem like a waste of time when there are tests and results to worry about. But such activities can build key skills. There's research to suggest that when you are playing Simon Says in games like it, you're learning how to control your impulses. You really want to touch your nose, but you know he didn't say nose, he said chin. So through play, kids can learn to stop. They can learn control. And these are useful skills to build upon in later learning. There's a lot more evidence that play, especially guided play, is a better grounds for learning in many situations than just drill and kill, as Hirsch Pasek refers to it. In one study she conducted with her team, we wanted to find out how do children learn toddler and preschool geometry? Geometry, you say? Well, yes. When young children are learning things like rectangles and triangles, they have to learn not only how to call the straight-on thing that you see with the tip at the top a triangle, but if I took that triangle, that little beautiful isosceles triangle, and I just twisted it a little bit to the left, would it still be a triangle? You see, a lot of young children don't explicitly know the criteria that make a shape a triangle. They don't know that a triangle has three connected sides and three angles, no matter the proportions. They just know what it looks like. So how do you get kids to learn the criterial features? Well, you can tell them. Or you can have them discover it for themselves, with a little guidance, of course. Hirsch Pasek's team did an experiment where they had three groups of children learn shapes in three different ways. In one, 
The adult picked up that triangle and very direct instruction he said, this has three sides and three angles. It's called a triangle. And we had just as long a training time as we're going to have as the kid is experimenting on his own, learning about triangles in the guided play condition. In guided play we said things like, what do you notice about this? What do you see? The kids played with pipe cleaners. They put triangles together. Is this a triangle? What makes that a triangle? And in the third condition, they just had a whole lot of triangles. They got to play any way that they wanted. As you may have guessed, the children in the group who were encouraged to discover the shapes for themselves, with inquisitive guidance from their caregivers, learned their triangles best. Meanwhile, other studies conducted by Hirsch Pasek's team have found that parents give much more detailed, active instructions to kids when they engage in guided learning than when they just let kids play free, or even when they instruct them directly. And that helps kids learn better, too. Well, what's the moral? The moral is if you just sit down and memorize those SAT words, as opposed to trying to make multiple meaningful, engaged, and active connections like you get in play, that you're not going to learn as well. So play gives us active, engaged, meaningful activities that help us build a narrative through which learning can take place. Of course, there are classes in which you may just need to get the information across. Like in a science class, when kids are in front of a hot Bunsen burner or some volatile chemicals. But Hirsch Pasek says that she isn't advocating all play all the time. Only that a little play can help kids get engaged. They'll be more focused and spend more time on something if it's meaningful to them. The most important part of playful learning, though, is that it breeds flexibility of thought. Remember that as we do more research in the impact of play on learning, we're not only talking about content learning, we're also talking about learning to learn. Right now we know that information is doubling every two and a half years. Think about that. So that means even if I put all the facts known to man and woman at this moment in time in 2012 into the head of a child, in just two and a half years, you'd only know 50%, and in five years, you'd be down to 25%. So it's a diminishing quantity. So what we need to do is explore learning to learn. We need to think about flexible thinking, divergent thinking, creative innovation to get the next Steve Jobs. We have the research that gives us the hints for how to incorporate playful learning into kids' daily lives, she says. Now it's a matter of putting the research into practice in classrooms where children can benefit from it. On a Friday morning at the New York Hall of Science, about 30 kids from a local elementary school are running around the large, brightly lit indoor playground that covers much of the top floor. I was there to interview Dr. David Cantor, director of SciPlay, the Sarah Lee Schuft Family Center for Play, Science, and Technology Learning. This particular morning, Cantor and two assistants are testing a new game that would integrate a guided play component into its educational mission. is the scooter cart game. So there's a very low scooter cart, which is a rehabbed utility cart that you might find in any uh, warehouse. And the uh, 
actually helps that it's low to the ground because when the kids dump each other off of the scooter cart when they're having too much fun, nobody gets hurt. That's Cantor. Before the games begin in earnest, a test class of elementary school kids line up to each get their own RFID, or Radio Frequency Identification, bracelet. Any bracelet? Just one? Pink one. And wrap it around your wrist. It's an integral part of the game they're about to play. A training video shows them the particular task at hand. It tells the students to partner up, as they are about to go on a racing mission. One partner will sit on a cart as the other pushes them across a specifically marked field in the room, and they need to match their velocity on the scooter cart to the types of races shown on the TV screen. So they see constant velocity, low acceleration, high acceleration. Each of those are represented with hash marks and skateboards and bicycles and and cars. And they see a visual representation, not a graphical representation of what those motions look like. Then they move over to the scooter cart and they log in. The person who's the driver runs their bracelet over the driver reader and it registers them and the rider does the same. Both of their names and pictures pop up on the on the board and then they choose their target motion from the three types I just mentioned. They wave a flag above their head which the computer senses through a video camera and that video camera then tracks their motion. And they get ready, set, and go. Push their friend down some 50 foot or so straight line and try to match the motion, and they get a score for how well they do. All right, your score is 80. Yeah! The first driver chose to push his teammate on the cart across the floor as fast as he could. Their mission was to hit the high velocity mark. Teams are given scores for their runs at the end of each and encouraged to explain why they think they did well or poorly by one of Cantor's assistants. So if in one second you went this far over here, but in one second over here you went that far, which place were you going faster? But the real learning will happen later on, in a classroom setting, when their scores are transferred to an online learning module. But I'll come back to that part in a minute. The difference between this pilot game and many of the existing play environments currently housed in the New York Hall of Science, is that the ones already up and running are freeform. They are big playgrounds that sneak some scientific knowledge in with the fun. There's not much of a takeaway component to any of them, as Cantor explains. And he wants to work on that. We have slide game, and we have the croquet game, and a bunch of games that you might play on the asphalt out on your playground. And the first trick of Psy Games is to turn those playground play activities into games that have some guides to them, like some rules to them. And the second trick is to design the game in such a way that you have to wrestle with the target science concepts in order to win the game. So the game is intrinsically integrating the content into the gameplay. We did work that stopped at that point earlier with the Psy Games and found that kids would get to some qualitative understanding of the science but wouldn't get all the way really to the canonical understanding that we're hoping for. Now, with a new grant from the U.S. Department of Education, Cantor hopes to build games that can spur more meaningful learning experiences. The new games build on the sort of science-ish play he described earlier 
where kids explore on their own. But the new game also... Very sneakily, very surreptitiously collects data from those students while they play without them knowing it. They're wearing RFID bracelets like the Easy Pass type technology. Later on, when the go-kart game is over, all that play data will be waiting for students on a digital app in the classroom. And they can sift through it with the help from their teacher to get a more formal understanding of some of the physics concepts involved. So we're bridging informal and formal science learning environments in a very careful way that starts to challenge the notion of this sort of one-day field trip. Cantor hopes this will help integrate more playful means of learning into standards-based education. So I think, yes, if you want to get people to a deep understanding of the content, and that's part of your goal, then you have to have some time to reflect on what you're doing while you're playing around. All right, we're ready. Come on in. Even if you're not done, just come on in and give me your paper. In the New York Hall of Science's test classroom, the kids fresh from their go-kart experiment explore their data. You're going to hit the import data button, and this is how you get your data from the playground. Everybody, I want you to click on one of the runs that you did and hit replay. Many seem genuinely engaged with the material, and they are eager to compare scores, both to their classmates and to fictional characters built into the digital app. They graph their own velocity against a sheep or an elephant on the same go-kart, with a little help from Cantor's assistants and their teachers. The class then talks about what a difference a heavier object on the cart makes, or what frictionless wheels would mean for the runs. All right, so, so this one, what do you think we can tell, what kind of information do you think we can get from this graph right here? I think that that uh, try was the one where we did a uh, uh, high acceleration. Cantor hopes games like the go-kart experiment can become useful tools for teachers looking to break out of mundane teaching methods while still keeping in line with rigorous curricula. I mean, what we're trying to provide here is a support for teachers who aren't feeling comfortable doing inquiry-based learning. So to some extent, this would uh, replace instruction that might be more traditional, where teachers feel grounded in worksheets and, and seat work. So it's very different than the one worksheet that you might get when you go home. Let's take a look at the push force. So you click on the push force part. And it's really a way of using the museum space as a very special kind of data gathering space. It doesn't put you in the mindset of forcing you to run experiments. You're gathering the data just very naturally by having a good time. The inquiry is robust, and it, it should fit directly into their curriculum. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Dana Foundation. A big thank you goes out to Dr. Adolf, Dr. Hirsch Pesek, and Dr. Cantor for lending us their time and expertise. This has been a podcast production of Science and the City. Visit us online at www.scienceandthecity.org. Or you can always shoot us an email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.